Hello everybody and welcome to the Can Rinse Podcast, Volume 5, Issue 218, Conquer's Bad Fur Day and Live and Reloaded. Play along with Can Rinse Volume 5. The next episodes or issues are Shin Megami Tensei Persona 3, in brackets FES slash portable, I don't know what that means, uh, Rage, Gunstar Heroes and Su- Super Future Heroes, uh, The Legends of Zelda, Majora's Mask and the 3D Iteration, and Titanfall. Topical. Head to canerince.com for articles, features, reviews, and links to our forum, Facebook page, and YouTube channel. If you enjoy what we do, there are a number of ways in which you can support us. We now have a Patreon, but there's no content hidden behind paywalls. If you don't wish to contribute or aren't able to, anything we, everything we create and produce will still be free and available to you. However, if you feel that the hours of podcasts that we produce for your listening pleasure are worth something financial in return, you can now donate $1 or more if you wish per month which will very much help us keep us going. Recently, with the, um, the terrible hosting situation we had, we changed because we had the money to do so, so thank you very much for that. If you prefer to get something tangible in return for your hard-earned, check out our shop where you can support the podcast by purchasing quality Canemins t-shirts and bags. Each purchase nets us a couple of quid. Uh, the, the, the websites are patreon.com forward slash Canemins and uh, shop.spreadshirt.co.uk forward slash Canemins, respectively. Please also check out our video games, music podcast, Sound of Play. It does music and stuff like that. Please review, rate and subscribe to both our podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, Radio, or TuneIn, and so many other things that play our words and voices. Joining me, Darren Gargett, in this issue is... Hang on, I've got to pronounce names. Ryan Heyman, is that right? That's, that's right, yep. Okay, good. Hello. And John Salmon. Yeah, that's also right. Good Hello, evening. Good. Hello. And uh, Michael Croda, is that, is that correct? Correct. Good evening. Right then, so Conquer's Bad Fur Day uh, was originally inspired by Super Mario 64's camera and uh, seeing the Banjo team create Banjo-Kazooie. After they saw the, the, the lovable bear and bird duo during development, they retooled the beehive recovery section of Conquer's 12 Tales to include a very British, in quotes, mature slash scatological sense of humour with wild animations and presented the idea to the Stamper Brothers. This was obviously approved and they, they ran with that as a um, kind of a template for the set the tone for the rest of the game. Uh, Conquer originally appeared in Diddy Kong Racing first uh, as a, as a kind of a cross promotional vehicle. <laughs> There's a nice pun there. Diddy Kong Racing vehicle. And yeah, it, it, he was, you know, there to much like Banjo was to sort of say, look, rare. I've got this whole roster of characters and, you know, they're going to race against each other first before they go on off their little adventures and split off in separate ways. Did anyone play as uh, Conquer in Diddy Kong Racing? Yeah, only after I knew of his significance, though. I think I only played Tip Top because his handling was uh, spot on. That's the right answer. Yeah, well where's done. our Tip Top game? <laughs> he, he, he did have one at one point, but they canned it. Um, but yeah, Tip Top was the uh, the musical Wicked Turtle Fest in uh, Banjo-Kazooie. Yeah, it was, uh, yeah. It was a good time. Yeah, they don't let anything go to waste that rare. Conquer originally was a, a cutesy platformer, much in the same vein as Mario 64 and uh, Banjo-Kazooie, as we mentioned just a minute ago, and it was under the name of Conquer's Quest, and recently, thanks to Rare Replay, we've seen some of this come out in, um, for, for in video form on the YouTube channel or within the game itself. I can't really remember where I saw it, but from I've heard about it for so long, and I've seen little bits here and there during the, you know, during the time since we played Bad Fur Day until now. But it's, it was really interesting to see it in high quality video to see what this game exactly was. Um, you know, we'd, we'd seen in magazines 12 Tales 64, uh, Conquer 64, which is the next name for this game. But 
to see such bare footage of both Conker and you know the original Barry flying around and using like spinning tops and kites and stuff to navigate around this world it was completely ridiculous when you um, compare it to what the game has turned out to be and you can see why they would look at their peers and go god they're making Banjo-Kazooie what we've got is so similar and probably not as good you can understand why they'd completely do a bait and switch and turn it into Congress Bad Fur Day. Did anyone else, like, during the time of the N64's, you know, life, follow 12 Tales or Conker's Quest? I'd seen it in magazines and stuff, but going back to it recently and looking at all of the videos and stuff that are kind of new footage, things that they've recently posted through the Rare Replay and through their own reinvigoration of their website that they've done recently, um, it actually reminds me a lot of the old Gex games that came out on the PlayStation and N64 mm-hmm. games because there's mm-hmm. very kind of highly thematic areas and Conker seem to wear different hats and have different abilities in each of these different areas, which is, uh, yeah, more kind of Gex-like than Banjo-Kazooie or any of its other contemporaries. Yeah, very much the, the same here. I, I remember seeing a lot of screenshots for it in magazines. Um, I think it was probably 64 magazine or N64 magazine that uh, made a comparison to the SNES platformer Mr. Nuts. Yeah, I'd, uh, you know, I'd seen Conquer in, in the Game Boy game, a Game Boy Color game, that, um, 12, Pocket Tales, and uh, you know, I'd played that and wasn't that impressed of it. I'd saw it, I'd seen him in Diddy Kong Racing, I did play as him, and you know, he, he was alright, he didn't really have much character in Diddy Kong Racing other than his little squeaky voice, and uh, you know, I, I always leaned towards either Banjo, because because it's Banjo, and I, I just kind of love, love at first sight with him, or, or tipped up because he's, he's badass. But um, yeah, uh, Conquest Quest in 12 Tales for me was kind of a bit of a, oh, well, yeah, okay, th- this is a thing that's happening. And then when it flipped over to Conquest Bad Fur Day, after, you know, the, uh, the recent, well, not recent, but for them, like, you know, at the time, recent uh, bait and switch of tone and theme was then I, well, I was then interested. Uh, the, the developer is, is rare, yeah, as you would know. Uh, that's probably why I'm here, because... I play their games to death, and uh, the publisher for Conquer Bad Fur Day, quite interestingly, uh, in the US, was uh, was self-published by Rare, and uh, THQ for Europe. So, and you know, we'll probably talk about that in a minute when we talk about um, pretty much what this game did and why Nintendo didn't like it. Uh, Conquer's Live and Reloaded was published by Microsoft Game Studios, and it was released on the N64 in 2001 between uh, the, you know the month of March and May. Uh, so North America got it in March. We got it in, I say we, Europe got it in April, and Australia got it in May, so it's kind of a staggered release. No Japanese release. Or well, not that I could find anyway, when I was over there, I was looking for it feverishly, but just couldn't get hold of one. Uh, Conquer Live and Reloaded, uh, pretty much the same week of June 2005, uh, 21st of June 2005, you know, it was that same window. And then uh, it was re-released in a compilation called uh, Rare Replay, quite possibly the greatest compilation of all time. No, that's just my personal preference, but yeah, um, it's an absolute wonderful delight. And uh, having Conquers by a fur day, the N64 version is, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's good to see it in a decent frame rate on that system. Uh, the director slash designer is Chris Seaver, um, or Seaver. You'll see, you'll see him it, whenever this game's mentioned online in more kind of um, public spaces. You'll see him crop up as a yeah, as an interviewee, I guess, and he, he is pretty much the whole, he's pretty much conquering human form, you know, he's, he is the, the voice. voices and everything. Yeah, yeah he, you know, he does it all, and uh, you could tell that when they that when they decided to flip the game into what it is now, you could probably, if you were to dig inside Chris's brain, it would probably be exactly what Conquest Bad Fur Day ended up being on, on the screen. 
uh, artist from Don Murphy and it was written by Robin Beanland and Chris Seaver. I think the Robin Beanland bit is specifically for one particular song and uh, the composer is uh, also Robin Beanland. Um, yeah, it's um, most most people when they talk about rare music, it's always Grant Kirkup or David Wise. Uh, so it's good to see that you know there are more composers and you know there are Steve Burke as well. But you know it's good to see that Rare use the whole breadth of their composers and they all have various different styles, but also you know retaining that kind of British rare theme. Uh, it reviewed pretty well on the N64 back in the day at about 89% according to game rankings, and the Xbox got 79% overall. It sold about 700 to 800,000 per versions or per you know console iterations, but that's going from a website that's trying to scrabble data from nowhere basically. So who knows if that's true or not? Yeah, so our histories with the game, uh, both I say old and new. Uh, I, I mean N64, Xbox, and uh, and a rare, you know, rare replayed if you pick that up or not. So for me personally, um, yeah, Conquer's Bad Fur Day was a bit of a hard slog to get uh, to get my hands on. Uh, I knew it was going to be expensive because it was kind of it was kind of like prepare. It was like I think the magazines were preparing you for it. They were like, you know, the, the news had come out that Nintendo were publishing that THQ were. And N64 games were expensive anyway at the time. I just remember saving up my lunch money for weeks on end, thinking I need to get this 60 quid in. But yeah, I also picked up the Conkers Live and Reloaded on Xbox on day one as well. And um, But I also had a little kind of brief glimpse into it when I was testing um, at that time. I only saw the live version and we were testing the network. And I remember it coming in and I was like, right, let's check out the new Conquer then. What are they going to do for the multiplayer? It turned out that the multiplayer was completely different. And we'll talk about that later on when we go through the differences of the two versions. But I remember thinking, yeah, this isn't this isn't going to be any good. Um, but yeah, so, and then obviously Rare Replayed. I picked Rare Replayed up, uh, Rare Replay, excuse me, up on day one. And I've yet to finish it on Rare Replay. Um, mainly because I just played it before then, like a year before in the Xbox version for, through the 360. So it's kind of like Conquer Overload at this point. You know, I'd played Project Spark and, I, I, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd done a lot of Conquery kind of things around that time. So to play it again was a bit too much of an ask for me. But Ryan, how about you? Did you pick up on day one for the N64? Um, no, I was a big Rare fan back in the day. And, you know, that is what I grew up playing. Uh, I didn't own an N64, but my neighbor friends down the street did. Although Conquer was one that I didn't pick up at the time. Or, and they didn't either. And so I didn't get the chance to play it contemporaneously. But I uh, went back to it when I was in high school, I believe which is about right <laughs> to be experiencing a game like this. Mm. And that's probably the uh, perfect age for something like that. But um, yeah, and so I played through that, really loved it, uh, picked up the Live and Reloaded on day one because by the time I finished Bad Fur Day, uh, they were just kind of gearing up for the Live and Reloaded big kind of marketing push and whatnot. And I was on the Rare Witch Project forums back in the old days, back when they were <laughs> coming online and uh, throwing us new screenshots every once in a while. And people were uh, photoshopping old Bad Fur Day screenshots to look like they would in the new graphical engine. And uh, it's a, a fun time to be a fan. Um, and then I, I, I did pick up the Project Sparks stuff later on. Uh, I think that was around day one as well. And uh, but yeah, I, I picked up my library and loaded on day one, and 
unfortunately, I actually I pre-ordered that one, and uh, the version that I got from GameStop had a big tear in the plastic in the back, which is a little disappointing because that's kind of one that I wanted to have in nice condition. But oh well, mm. still a good game. And uh, John, how about yourself? I think I'm going to be the odd one out here because. Although I was a huge fan of the N64, it was the first console that I ever bought with my own money when I was about 13 or 14. I I missed this. My N64 bit the dust before this thing came out. Oh, really? Uh, Yeah. Uh, Yeah, there's a long story there that doesn't really need to be explained on this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, uh, yeah, I remember I had the N64 magazine, and I continued to buy it after my N64 died because I loved it so much. So Mm -hmm. I saw everything about this. I heard everything about it. I really liked Banjo-Kazooie. A huge fan of that. Uh, Again, missed uh, Tui because of the same problem. Uh, So I actually didn't managed to get round to this until about a month ago was the first time <laughs> I, I ever played Conquer. Good. Uh, obviously with Rare Replay, with the Xbox One now we've finally had a proper re-release of the original I know the original Xbox version was a re-release but from what I understand it was watered down quite a bit. Yeah, it's a different game mm, It, it mm. never grabbed me in the same way so I've waited for this for I suppose 15 years at this point <laughs> uh, Michael, how about yourself? Yeah, day one, pretty much. Um, at the time, the N64 was the only console I had, and there was nothing else coming out at the time anyway, so I figured I might as well spend uh, 200 guilders on it. And that was, uh, yeah, roughly equates to 100 euros, which should be about 80 quid over on your side of the channel. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it was. Good stuff. How about Live and Reloaded? Any interest in that when they were remaking it? I kind of have a... It seems that I have a bit of a relationship with the game because at the time I joined the Dutch edition of GamePro magazine, which was um, an American magazine, but there was a, was a local version of it. I, was, I became a hmm. staff editor, and that was one of the first games, maybe even the first, that I reviewed. And since I was kind of an uh, evangelist for the game uh, among my friends as well, I probably overscored it a little bit. <laughs> I was super excited to do my first uh, review as a staff editor, and yeah, I had a I pretty much, you know. History was about to repeat itself because your debut podcast on Kane and Rinse is all about Conquer, so hopefully you don't over, overrate it this time around. Hopefully, you got a more balanced sense of where you're at with it. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> Ah, so yeah, um, when you flick on your N64, uh, you know, you'll you'll see a cute little, like most rare games on the N64 featured a spinning N64 logo. That was kind of par for the course. And I remember distinctly when I flicked on the N64 version of Conker's Bad Fur Day, seeing the little jingle in the background, much like Banjo and, you know, other rare games. But this time it was a little bit kind of... A little bit weird. Uh, you know, you'd hear the phrase "stupid logo" muttered by Conker, and a chainsaw would come out of nowhere and rip the logo in half. Now, I think that's more than a coincidence. That that's in the start of the game, published not by Nintendo. Um, how does anyone else feel about this? Because at the time, I was scratching my head, thinking, "What the bloody hell's going on here?" But it, I think they've come out and said that it's got nothing to do with it. But honestly it's like something deep down inside of me thinks that there's a little bit of resentment towards Nintendo for not actually getting what Conquer is uh, you know or Conquer's Bad Fur Day at least 
Anyone else feel the same? I, I'm i not sure because obviously not having played the N64 version, I haven't seen this in-game. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't know if this is relevant and pertinent to the conversation. Uh, watching the... Uh, I think it's on Rare Replayed... Oh, sorry, Rare Replay. There's <laughs> a video about the making of Conquer and they mention in that... They don't specifically mention the intro, but they talk in that... And whether or not, you know, maybe they're sort of dodging around the topic, maybe it's something they don't really want to talk about, but there's no, there doesn't seem to be any resentment towards Nintendo in that respect. In fact, I remember them saying specifically that Nintendo seemed to be pretty well behind the project, which they were surprised by. Hmm. Yeah, it seems a bit at odds with the, uh, the, you know, the publishing or, you know, the lack of publishing from their side, but yeah. Mm. um, You'd think Nintendo would be possibly against this sort of thing they're famous for being particularly conservative so maybe they're you know on the rare replay on these little features and stuff they've given out they're not wanting to muddy the waters and uh, disparage them at all but there doesn't my side of things i haven't heard any particular hatred towards nintendo or any dislike from nintendo towards the game but i say maybe it's been sort of glossied over a little bit being that it's also 15 years gone by I can't help shake the feeling that Chainsaw ain't a logo of the company that you've just, or you're just about to fall out with in terms of, you know, big money publishing deals. Yeah, it, 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 it sticks in my uh, craws. I, I just want an answer. It's like it's like a different version of Stop and Swap. It's just like, just give us the real yeah. truth. Just, just tell me. It's hard to, to not see this uh, symbolism, but also I think it, mm. it's, it's kind of a... Uh, um, a reference to previous rare games on the N64, with, which all had some sort of cute animation going on with the yeah. logo. And mm-hmm. this Conquer being co- Conquer, it seemed very fitting as well that he would take a chainsaw and cut through it. Yeah. Since he does all sorts of horrible things to creatures and, and, and innocence in the game. But that's right. I mean, you've seen Banjo and Kazooie dancing alongside, you know, Mumbo with their with their instruments of their, you know, of their names. And you know, and before that, the N64 logo had a little dragonfly flying around it. So it kind of made sense that when the Conquer team saw Banjo and went, "Oh God, they're doing a better job than us," that they would then do something they would do, but with their own unique twist, which is kind of the whole game, uh, you know, from beginning to end. So yeah, you know. I want to see. I want it to be my way, but I reckon your version is probably more factual than what I, than what my head has made it up to be. The story premise of the game is a is a very British one. I do feel. I feel like the whole game is just riddled with Britishisms and just kind of just pure, uh, you know, British sense of humour. Uh, but Conquer is out on the beers with his uh, with his pals, and he phones up uh, Berry, his partner. She missed the phone call that Conquer's given out, uh, you know, from the pub. And, you know, lo and behold, he puts the phone down. And he's, uh, you know, he gets another round in. Right. Who's round with it? Yours! What, again? And then it cuts to a very Lion King, Disney-esque Panther King. (laughs) Sitting down, um, you know, about to drink a cup of milk, as you do. And uh, you you realise that the, the fourth leg on his table is missing and he needs a replacement leg. And he gets in his, uh, you know, his crack team, his, uh, his, uh, his, his weird characters, his weird array of characters that he's got. And, uh, yeah, he wheels in a, um, a weasel on an electric floating chair to solve the mystery of the wobbly table. Now, we have here, if you look, the table. If you analyse the table closely, as I have done, most particularly, you will see that there is a gap. 
and we're not talking any old gap here, my lord. It is a sizable one. Now, to solve this problem, uh, you know, uh, what else do you do then other than proper, uh, you know, a squirrel, preferably conquer, underneath to uh, create the fourth leg? Furious Squitalius, to use the proper vernacular. To the layman, the red squirrel. Get me one of these red squirrels. Yes, my lady. Now, you know, that, that is just everyday video game storytelling, right? That's just, that's just, and you can't help but when you see that, that part of the story kind of sets it all up for what's going to happen to the rest of the game. It's not your usual game. It's not your traditional game story. It's stupid. And before <laughs> that, you've seen Conquer in the chair, you know, talking about how he ended up becoming king of all the land, you know. He's got all the cast around him, so you're getting like a bit of foreshadowing and... It really is a tale of how does he get from there to here? And, you know, you play that. You, you play Conquer going home and getting distracted by all these characters that you're seeing in front of you. And it's just a, such a unique, interesting tale. Does anyone else remember oh, that, that long introduction at the start? It, if I, when I see it again now, it does kind of go on a bit too long for me. But it makes sense. It's even got music that kind of parodies... It's a straight-off Clockwork Orange reference. Even though I didn't catch all the references, like, there's enough there for people to grab onto certain things and go, right, I've heard that before from somewhere else, and I've heard that, and I've seen that from somewhere else. And straight from the off, it's kind of... It's giving you little teasers of what's to come without really telling you. It's like, you know, the, the milk bar and the music and the, and the characters. It's like, this is what you're going to get, this is what you should expect, and... Even if you catch on to one of them, you know that the rest of the game is going to tread along those similar lines. So the game is is very cutscene heavy, and it's something I wasn't really anticipating because Rare, as a company, were very, you know, very gameplay focused. I guess. How do people feel about the game being, in my view, more cutscene like a Metal Gear Solid heavy game than not? It was, it was quite of a, um, a you know a bit of a polarizing opinion for me at first. Of course, having the, the, uh, played the game when it first came out, it was a breath of fresh air on the N64, of course, which wasn't really known for its cutscene-heavy games. And the cartridge format, of course, uh, was, uh, was a big restriction. Not so with, mm -hmm. not so with Conquer, since it was a 64 mech cartridge, mm -hmm. I believe. Yeah. Which also Indeed. It also contributed to the price, of course. It really helped that all the cutscenes were done in-engine, and so really everything looked like it was a part of a continuous flowing hole. And mm. um, the kind of almost instantaneous loading time of the cartridges meant that when you walked up to a character it would just you know begin playing the cutscene you wouldn't have to sit through a loading screen or uh, you know sometimes in Metal Gear things do get a little slowed down but um, mm -hmm. yeah right here you just get too close to a character and then they start calling you over like hey kid come here I need your help with this yeah to me that's really cool because it's like playing a Saturday morning cartoon like a um, like mm. one of those like early Disney kind of Steamboat Willie or uh, kind of the early like Merry Melodies type cartoons that uh, that this this world heavily riffs on, especially with the music and the windy area is very evocative of that time period with their uh, muted trumpet sound. Even though they they are kind of you know pushing the boundaries like verbally with the swearing and kind of saying stuff that those kind of cutesy characters wouldn't normally say 
they're, they're presented in such a way that's kind of Disney-esque as well, but with its own mm. weird twist, you know what I mean? There's, a, there's something very sinister about that Panther King, like there are in Disney cartoons. But here, he's kind of angry at a glass of milk, but he's angry in a way that's... It, it's a weird it's a weird way of presenting such a bad guy and it will stick in my head for you know for as long as i live as like one of the one of the classic kind of bad guys in in uh, you know especially on the n64 you never really got characters of that ilk or character at all in games like that but you know the, the way they the all the the audio was fed into these guys uh, especially for a cartridge based game in which they you know when they when they were first recording all these voices they said it would never be done but lo and behold they pulled it out of the bag but yeah um John, as a as a recent kind of player to this, how do you feel about the the cutscene heavy nature of the game? Does it does it bore you now, or do you think they could have, uh, or do you think there wasn't enough? Ah, uh, it doesn't bore me at all. I mean, it's the vast majority of the little jokes and things that go on are all allusions to fairly popular movies. From a lot of them are from exactly around the time that the game came out, within a few years of the game coming out. Mm. But they're all big, sort of famous. A lot of sci-fi, a lot of action, um, and yeah, I, it reminds me a lot of something like Space, where you've got a huge amount of kind of comic relief, non-secretary jokes. Um, uh, referential humour back to other things and even when it makes virtually no sense for Conquer to be suddenly in one area and then suddenly in another uh, it just even 15 years after it came out with everything that's happened in games since I found that the I had my frustrations with the game but none of it was to do with the way that the story or the plot or any of the cutscenes or anything were formed. They were all purely mechanical things that bothered me with it. Hey, it's interesting to hear that you reference uh, Spaced, which is, uh, for people who don't know, Spaced is a, a TV show back in the 90s, maybe late 90s, early yeah. 2000s. Uh, Simon Pegg. 2000s? Yeah, about that time. Uh, mm-hmm. So Simon Pegg and Nick Frost and you know Edgar Wright doing their thing on Channel 4, which is a UK-based uh, TV uh, channel over here. And yeah, I love Space to Pieces, and I never really put the two together until you say that, because in Space, there was a lot of kind of, like you say, non-secular moments where they're just doing things because it's funny, and why not? Yeah, and referential humour for mm. just the sake of having a little cutaway. Uh, yeah, it seemed to be... Uh, maybe they were riffing on that, I don't know, because obviously you've got a UK team and you've got a game that came out and was being developed at the same time that Space would have been on TV. I think it's a response to the types of games that were being made at the time, and that's why it was such a specific, like a um, like a representation of that time that couldn't exist at any other time in gaming history. The fact that it was immediately preceding something like Banjo-Kazooie and Super Mario 64, and all of these platformers that, um, you know, the Crash Bandicoots and stuff, and uh, it's like every little element, the fact that the little flowers are dancing around on the, just on the ground there and all of the, you know, cutesy, happy music um, and ultimately the way that it's structured in that in these other games you would, you know, cross over into the haunted house zone and you would cross over into mm. the, um, you know, the farm zone is one of the ones that is uh, in this <laughs> game. And Sounds like the Crystal Maze. <laughs> UK based it's like TV a crap show. crystal maze. The farm zone. 
but it's all uh, it's all right next to each other in this because it is constructing it more like a real place than even mm-hmm. the Banjo Kazooie games or anything. Which, um, but yeah, they are trying to kind of construct a map, and you can see things from you can see like the beehive from the haunted house or you know something. You can see mm. all these different venues that you will eventually go to, and so in that way, it's kind of like a, like Dark Souls a little bit. Like this is a coherent world and everything is walkable at least in the first half of the game they they rely on that a little bit more heavily and it's um everything feels connected in that way and i think the point of that is to kind of make fun of how uh how unrealistic that model is in other games and how Mm -hmm. uh you know this the variety in something like banjo kazooie or super mario 64 is fun but it's you know, very superficial. And if you try to create a world that really abides by that logic, then you're going to come up with something that is just completely ludicrous, like this, with a war taking place just steps away from uh, a seemingly unaffected, um, you know, windmill and a little bees crying about her nest. And um, and another piece that goes into it is that this story has a very heavy sense that it was kind of being made up as they went and i think that is <laughs> yeah. the story behind uh, all the developers have talked about um you know, the writing of the story and all and nothing was written beforehand and to that sense it, it is kind of fun and kind of refreshing because it means that you never know what's going to come up next and it is completely unpredictable in the same way that you know just uh, playing improv games is unpredictable mm-hmm. but it, it does it doesn't lead to a lot of uh, you know foreshadowing or and it has a lot of pacing problems and the difficulty curve is all over the place because this wasn't planned out beforehand and it doesn't have the same kind of character arc and all of that and so in that sense I think it's okay because it works as a general takedown of the types of games that it was riffing off of but um, it, I think it is just kind of like a one-time trick that if they tried to do it again today, uh, I think one, it wouldn't work because the types of games that it was riffing off of don't really exist anymore. And so this game wouldn't fit into the uh, the current marketplace quite as nicely. And two, is the whole like, you know, making it up as you go, I, I think would wear a bit thin if they extended it any longer than it went. And so, uh, yeah, just the fact that, you know, if they were to develop a sequel, it would have to be pretty different from the ground up. There, there's a huge sense of sp- spontaneity when you play the game, and um, yeah. the whole point is that there is no formula. If they do a sequel, they're, they're probably going to approach it like a formula. Oh yeah, this this non-sequitur, you know, following of events uh, is is the formula for conquer, and because the spontaneity would be would be gone, it would defeat the whole purpose probably. Right. Yeah, the idea of having a cohesive world around you when you're in each individual area was kind of a thing they're most proud of when you hear them talking about it in interviews and stuff. They were like, yeah, we, it was intentional design that when you're at the top of this giant water bucket uh, about to do a concept-sensitive move that turns you into an anvil, you can see other areas around you because you're so high up. Now, I have feelings about how that bit plays, but in terms of actual artistry and sound design, it is incredible, especially for the N64 and the limitations that machine had. Uh, one of my favorite jokes in the game that is kind of like a parody of the uh, Mario 64 Banjo-Kazooie formula is the windmill. Um, 
the fact that they pretty much like Chekhov's gun in this windmill right at the very beginning of the game as the central point and the central hub of the entire game. Like everything branches off from the windmill. Like that is your medulla in this game. Like that is where you keep <laughs> coming back to and passing through. And all the while you see this windmill and you assume like this is where the final boss is going to be or whatever because it is yeah. the central point of the game and i think you were able to climb it at some point on your way to the haunted house level but um you never get to go inside until after the war level in which um they destroy the windmill in some uh, you know as they're shooting one of the characters back in a cannon or something like that but um mm -hmm. But it's funny because Conker even remarks on that. He says, like, Where did the windmill go? And I was sure that was the final level. <laughs> this is what was foreshadowed. And, yeah, wow, that's so funny. Like, just on a metatextual level. <laughs> mm, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of fourth wall breaking moments in this game. And, you know, even from the, 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 the audio prompting you to press B button at any time, you know, it's very much like it knows it's a game and it's not afraid to sort of. You know, even when the story doesn't make sense, Conker just turns at the camera and goes, "What? What? What happened to that character? Like, how come all of a sudden this is happening? It's, it's all kind <laughs> of like you say, very fourth wall breaking." And uh, yeah, especially for the time, quite a, um, a you know a revelation. So yeah, uh, the, the art in the game uh, today. I played all three versions at the same time. I played the the. You know the Xbox version, the uh, rare replay version, and the N64 version all run at the same time. And there's one thing that I can say about all three versions is that you can tell that typical rare fashion they are pushing their R&D department to the max with with the yeah. art. It just yeah, the the N64 version was struggling to to run at any frame rate, which is kind of weird for my brain because I remember the N64 being quite smooth because I didn't know any better. But when you have them all lying next to each other, even when the, N uh, the, the Xbox 360 running the Xbox version, it looks so much better and it has such a smoother frame rate. And then you turn to the right for me and it was the N64 version chugging at like, it felt like 10 frames a second, but I'm probably over-exaggerating. But the way they build their worlds with, you know, with their art teams is just absolutely sublime. And they they have a way of making it so like they don't let anything go to waste ryan mentioned earlier the little kind of flowers dancing on the floor now that's a hangover from 12 tales conquer 64 you know mm -hmm. and the windmill again was kind of it was supposed to be a central point in conquer's quest slash 12 tales the whole game is kind of built around the original art from 12 tales conquer 64 but I don't think that the giant poo mountain would have been in the original game, but you can sort of tell that the foundation was there to start off with. There's a few small touches that I really connect with. Uh, first of all, the facial animation on pretty much everybody is pretty superb. Uh, you can kind mm. of see the, uh, you know, like sometimes the way that the mouths open, especially on the weasels and stuff, it, like you can definitely see what's happening on a technical level, like peering behind the, the blanket a little bit, but uh, Conker is very expressive and has uh, some very fun facial animations throughout, uh, which was uh, in place from the very earliest iterations of the game. Uh, I mm. think that the the texture work in this game is really excellent. Uh, the fact that uh, the way that they're able to make the uh, the poo particularly look all slimy by overlaying invisible textures on top of it, and um, and the way that they're able to texture blend between differing textures um, 
Yeah, just the way that the environmental textures ever since Banjo-Kazooie was something that Rare has always done very well. And um, and it, it made this world feel like there were no like firm straight line cutoffs, like everything blended into each other and everything felt very natural. And uh, and then also the in, in both versions, the Xbox and the N64 version, the blood and the just the liquid physics looked really good. Mm. And in the N64 version, it was because they had uh, very meticulously defined uh, kind of flat images that they animated and would overlay onto the scenes. And, you know, looking back at it now, like it, it still looks good, but you know, everything is very clearly a sprite. Whereas in, uh, Mm. in the, Xbox version, I they must have some sort of liquid dynamics. I think probably the same stuff that they ended up uh, using for the uh, cameo water effects. Um, but yeah, just the the way that the blood sprays from decapitated squirrels and stuff like that, that continually looks excellent. Also, with the uh, the zombie squirrels, for example, when you uh, when you shoot off their heads with a shotgun, like parts of the of the of the Parts of the head will will uh, break off from the from the main part and mm. so the, like, yeah, braids yeah. on the inside. There's so much detail to the game; it's amazing. So I second everything that uh, Ryan has said, and I was preparing for the worst going back to it in the in the previous week because yeah, the N64 typically uh, the graphics of the system don't age very well, uh, but I think it it has held up really really well, and I still was impressed so much impressed and amazed with with what they did on the system um i, I would as a total as a total assessment i would uh, i would have no problems calling it uh, or looking at it uh, on par with early dreamcast titles only being in a lower le- lower resu- resolution basically yeah absolutely i was very pleasantly surprised actually by how good everything looked and it's difficult for me to say because I wasn't sure how much of a leap they've made from uh, the Rare Replayed version, which I believe is a port of the N64. They've not taken anything from the Xbox, is that right? That's right, right yeah, it is the N64 version. So I was I was quite surprised looking at it, thinking that this game was originally 15 years old. I know that they've done lots of things with uh, the other games that they've ported across to the system, like the Banjo-Kazooie games. Uh, but yeah, I couldn't believe that this was something that was so old, uh, especially when I have been back to the N64 in more recent years, and I've looked at games like Jet Force Gemini a couple of years ago and barely been able to make out what was supposed to be going on on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> Although, granted, it was probably through an HD uh, TV, mm. so yeah, I'm yeah. not doing it the right way, but... Uh, I was uh, yeah, I was very pleasantly surprised, and I thought a lot of the animation stuff looked fantastic. Everything was very fluid. Um, as you mentioned, the characters have remarkably good facial animations, uh, even to the point where the lip syncing looks. It, yeah, despite the fact yeah. they don't have lips, it's not just sort of a mouth flapping around with words coming out. It looks like it's been fully animated. And it's crazy because a lot of the uh, faces in N64 games were just like head models with uh, a face texture slapped onto it. I mean, Perfect Dark, the year before from the same, you know, t- or same developer, uh, you know, the, their faces were, like you say, just textures on a on a polygon. So, you know, yeah. to see see the uh, the emotion come through these, going, uh, these guys on an N64 cart was pretty impressive. Uh, 
Twelve Tales always had that in mind from development, so they've probably been building on it for a fair few years. That they kind of built the game around, you know, fun, unique mechanics with, you know, various toys to play with, but also the expressions you can see on their face from pretty much, you know, the, the alpha versions of Twelve Tales. They had that in mind, and you know, they were definitely putting that as a forefront. And that, you know, it was it was a wise move to keep it because for a, a game that's so cutscene and joke heavy that really plays into it like when Conker bumps into a bit of money and the eyes start rolling in the back of it well, you know in the back of his head and he sees the dollar signs which is always weird to me because I always thought we should be seeing pound signs but is he American is he English I don't know I'm not here to decide but um you know when things happen to Conker and he's in his reacting to it like when he has you know too much beer and the uh the mm. eyes tick over to the red you you it completely works and it does feel like a playable cartoon which is something you'd never really say about N64 games ever because they were never the best looking games even at the time like you played some N64 games and you were like this is a this is a new release why does it look like I've got a net curtain over my face it's uh yeah it was never it was never the the best machine to show graphics off to unless you had the right team for and you know rare uh, and Nintendo, unsurprisingly, were Kings of the Castle. But Conquer Bath, Conquer Bath Verde, even though it had a low frame rate on the 64, it, it kind of didn't matter at the time because you had nothing else to compare it to in terms of like presentation. Well, I mean, how would you compare it to Banjo Tooie, which came out at almost exactly the same time as this? I mean, the the, the definitions or the the differences that I would rely on heavily are the fact that. The banjo game would have had no voice acting in it whatsoever. It would have just had grunts and gorps and stuff. I can't imagine the character models looked anywhere near as... Um, well, they wouldn't have had the, the animation behind them to deal with all of the speech stuff. Yeah, you know, they're kind of... Um, if you look at them on, in image form, they are 3D platformers, but they are kind of two different genres, you know. Conquer relying mainly on storytelling and comedy, whereas Banjo, Kazooie and Tui are you know outright 3d action platformers um so yeah banjo doesn't have the fidelity but i think it has the world for you to play with and that's why the banjo series was so successful uh you know because it because it had the gameplay to match the world whereas um conquer pretty much has you know the it, it started off telling you that it was going to be a funny game and it kind of ran with it also both games being from two different development teams they probably prioritize different bits uh, as far as fidelity and, yeah. and graphics go mm, yeah. and uh, if you look at Benjo 2 and compare it the worlds are much bigger and uh, better looking and in uh, Conquer it's mainly the characters that look uh, look a lot better yeah Another one of those little bits of animation that I think was really strong was Conker's tail. In particular, I think I remember hearing somewhere that they basically just applied whatever kind of, uh, I don't want to say artificial intelligence, but whatever kind of scripting they would give to a balloon. And so it was always floating up towards the, uh, you know, towards the sky and he would kind of jostle it every once in a while and then it would kind of float back to the top of it. It looked so twitchy and alive and cute and natural. Like his, his tail just throughout the game and all of the animations that it has uh, always look excellent. And then this was the high point of, uh, of idle stances as well and little idle animations whenever you weren't moving the character, which is something that's a little disappointing that we don't see as often anymore, but uh, mm. we had a ton of those. Start playing Killer Instinct on the Game Boy. <laughs> Uh, that's you know there are some there are some classics in there you know where he's drinking the milk from the uh, 
from the from the glass and it's, it's kind of a nod towards the, to, to the story and he'll also start singing that he's bored because he's sitting around waiting and bod bod bodity bodity bod bod any particular favourites from anyone else? oh yeah he pulls out a porno mag that's called Beaver <laughs> <laughs> you know he's kind of like it's Sonic's attitude but kind of like a, a British version of it you know so taking, taking the mick you know having yeah, a laugh yeah. and even though he's annoyed he'll it, still be really like dry and sarcastic about it uh, but yeah you know they, they changed it for various versions obviously in the uh, free, uh, I keep saying 360 version in, in the Xbox version you know he didn't whip out a Game Boy he, he did pull out a kind of uh, a device that looked like a GBASP which is quite weird to see because you know the transition had happened by that point obviously and so to see anything resemble Nintendo in that in that game was a little bit of a kind of like oh right yeah that's, that's a bit weird but yeah you know um, Idle Animations you know I, they, they, they must take a fair bit of time out of someone's month but you know it, it kind of adds to it, especially for Conquer as well which is like, like we keep saying it's so animation and comedy you know, yeah. prioritised it kind of fits that game whereas in some other games you just you just see it because I guess they don't want to burn an image onto your screen so they just present you something else and you know and, and while all this is happening there is a you know there are there are there's music played in the background pretty much all the time and there's there's dramatic ambient music there's there's sound effects to go with all this and and you know interactive music you know much like you know, Banjo-Kazooie where you go from area to area and it will change it will kind of adapt depending on your surroundings but you know uh, and then on top of this you've got all the voice acting to go which really pushes the game forward like the, the voice acting in this game is the game like if you didn't have the voice acting in Conquest Bad Fur Day I don't think the game would work at all like this is kind of right. what this is what sets it apart from any other game on the N64 in my mm-hmm. opinion I feel like the voice acting really separates it from the rest and if it was just speech bubbles or if it was just you know Star Fox you know Star Fox language blah 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 blah. if, if they had that you you wouldn't have got it you wouldn't have um, you, the, the game wouldn't have worked at all how, how do people feel about it? So much of the humour does come through the delivery as well like I just remember the way that certain lines sound like the uh, uh, the way that the paintbrush and the, the paint bucket talk anyone got a neck yeah, look at you up there hanging there. You stupid bastard. You ain't got a neck, are you? You ain't got a neck, are you? I already said that. Shut up. Oh, okay. The guy just outside the barn at... Get this fat-ass bitch off of my back pronto. Like, all those lines <laughs> are so funny because, like, the characters just sound so funny. I love with the the more villainous characters, the dramatic pauses that they drop, you know? It's not like a loaning thing because it's a cartridge, of course, but uh, things like, I don't drink. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and the, the infamous duct tape line. I don't want to have to get the duct tape out again. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, the way that Von Cripplesback, the, uh, the professor, always is muttering to himself. I just love the uh, introduction of the floating chocolate. And you know, he's, he's trying to create or trying to solve this problem of the, uh, of the, the table leg. And he's running around his lab and it's like Fuck um, the milk, the milk, the table, the table, the table, what shall I do, what shall I do with this? Um, clean slate, yeah, clean slate. Uh, this, uh, anti-gravity chocolate, so it's, it's kind of working. 
that's, that's voodoo, that's voodoo, at the f***ing window with that. Just throws it out the window <laughs> and it lands in front of Conker and it kind of explains the like floating collectible, which is such a video game thing. <laughs> yeah, it's got some, it's got some incredible moments. And as far as I can tell, these four, you know, there are four people who voiced all the characters. I, I might be wrong in that, and there may be some other ones, but uh, you know, according to the internet, it was you know Chris Marlowe, Christopher Siever, Louise, uh, or Louisa, Louise Ridgeway at the time. I don't know if she just changed her name to Louise O'Connor and Robin Beanland. You know, they did the voices for the, these characters, and it was just like, uh, that's pretty incredible, and the way the game switched from nice to kind of naughty, that it must have been a fairly kind of quick thing to do as well. And, you know, um, but because it was Siva's brainchild, uh, you know, coming out into video game form, I imagine he knew exactly how each scene was going to be. And, uh, you know, absolutely nail it. The music, I feel like, doesn't get enough credit when people talk yep, about it. Yep. People do talk. People do talk about the voice acting, and that is well deserved. Like that is spot on. But the music in this game, it really fits the game. <laughs> like that sounds a really stupid thing to say because, like, that is that's always been the music for me in, in this game. But I couldn't imagine any other soundtrack going along with it. It's so kind of oh, Sunday afternoon in England on a kind of a in the summer it's so just kind of like whimsical and just like just like da, 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 walking through the park it's like yeah having a good time it's like it's just so it's just so in tune of what that game is uh, but obviously it has dramatic and thematic changes like when you're in the uh, Saving Private Ryan moment it kind of changes into that and the Matrix it has its own spoof of you know, the, the mm. Matrix music. And, you know, the rock solid bit, it kind of reminds me of Blade, so they have their dance club scene. And, uh, you know, they, they, they hit the notes of what they're trying to achieve in my, you know, when I, when I see these moments happen in front of me. But I feel like because they're so in sync with what's happening on the screen, you kind of just take it as a whole thing together, you know? Like hearing the, the Blade-esque music during the Rock Solid moment, it works so well together that it kind of just happens naturally and you don't even think about it. And I think that's probably yeah. the best thing you could say about a soundtrack is that it kind of fits the visual so you don't even notice it's there. That kind of theme that runs throughout the whole of Conquer, like you say, will adapt. Uh, but one of my favourites is when you get close to like bees, and it'll kind of just sort of <laughs> zoom along to the tune. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's very typical of that studio to do that kind of stuff, and very kind of Disneyland in that way as well. Yeah, you know, so you know, you do in Disney films, you do uh, expect, to, or you wouldn't be surprised if you saw a group of bees singing along to whatever the songs they're singing to. I'm, I'm quite surprised, actually, thinking about it, over the last few you mm. know, playthroughs, that they didn't have a sing-along version of this game where they suddenly just bust out into song and dance. Because Rare is a very dance song-based studio. Mm. You know, just play Rare Replay and check the opening for just how musical they are. I'm quite surprised. Maybe you know, for Conquer's other bad. That have a bad day which was meant to be the sequel well, you know were they supposed to break out into song and dance because that would be very fitting for the studio that would be quite funny the the soundtrack um, composed by Robert Beamland again um, is kind of like you were mentioning earlier like it, it's such like an acrobatic feat almost like 
there are several huge genre shifts in in this game, and um, but they're all like excellent compositions, which is weird because this is a comedy game, and usually that's not a priority for this type of game. But um, I, I think the the music that plays when you are hunting down villagers for Dracula, essentially, uh, mm. I think that track is just called Bats, is like a brilliant classical composition. Like it kind of makes me feel like. It's a cover of another song or something, but it, it just is so rich and so good. Like that's a that's an excellent, like one of the very best tracks. You know, uh, the Conquest by a Fair Day soundtrack isn't exclusively made for the game. There's, you know, quite famous or infamously, I never know the difference. Uh, there's a track from Jet Force Gemini that was never used. That's used in the um, the Colosseum moment in Conquest by a Fair Day. <laughs> and I think I think the the bats music, it kind of it, it came from. Now uh, that I'm recording the podcast, I can't remember where it's from, but it's kind of taken from something else, uh, but kind of twisted a little bit. And I wish I had more facts. Well, that, that bit of the game, the Haunted House section, is, is very heavily based on Francis Ford Coppola's version of Bram Stoker's Dracula, which I, I love, love, love that movie. It's so... It, it's like the perfect balance between, like, actually a really good retelling of the story and, you know, somewhat scary and also just, like, absurdly goofy with the acting and Keanu Reeves in the main role and uh, Gary Oldman playing a super hammy Dracula who still manages to be intimidating but um, mm. so I, I'm very happy to see that in this game as well and uh, I just think that that whole chapter uh, the music didn't remind me of anything from that particular soundtrack but I think everything else in that chapter is just super spot on and um, it's very funny you know, the, the Conquest Bad Fur Day is, is a platforming game. You know, you do control the squirrel and you use the analog stick and buttons to manipulate him to get around the environments. You know, it's, it's very much that. But I think uh, upon seeing Banjo-Kazooie and how well they were doing in development, they kind of spun the game into something completely different, as we mentioned earlier. But also in terms of kind of game design, they really wanted to be something completely different. And, you know, I... I kind of coined the phrase for this game as the anti-platformer in the fact that it, it has collectibles but they're not really essential for the game. Uh, the money is but you bump into that often enough just through the story moments in the fact that they don't really become a collectible, more of a kind of a thing you get by playing the game. You know a collectible for me is you going out of your way and using your abilities that you've earned by playing the game to get more abilities, you know, that that's what collectibles are. and. Here in Conquered by Further, you've got kind of a, well, everyone knows it, you know, the context sensitive buttons are kind of, as Chris Siever, you know, quoted, uh, well, as Chris Siever said, is that it's a get out of jail free card that they, they designed early on to kind of go, instead of giving the, the player and the character moves as they play, how about we just give them the right move at the right time to get through the scene? And to me, that's kind of completely polarised into what Banjo-Kazooie is. You know, Banjo-Kazooie, you earn the right to then, you know, run faster and then you can get the next thing that kind of allows you to do another thing. 
Whereas here, it's just like, just press a button, mate, and you'll pull out some aspirin to cure your hangover. How do people feel about the the complete anti-platformer design around the game? Was it kind of refreshing to you, or were you kind of like a, a bit annoyed that it wasn't a more traditional platform game? I was completely burned out, uh, burned out on Donkey Kong 64 at the time, so it was very welcome yeah. for me to not yeah. have to collect anything and just you know, <laughs> <laughs> play through the game. Uh, so it, was, yeah. it couldn't have come at a better time, actually. I was quite surprised by this because I had it in my head before I started playing this that this was going to be essentially the same almost identical gameplay setup as a Banjo-Kazooie game with a set number of very distinct worlds and you would have collectibles and you would have very specific objectives in each one that would be localized to the world itself and that you would have a move set that you'd learn as the game went on and even as I started playing it there were bits in there that made me think oh yeah this is something I have to come back to later um, from the very beginning of the game you can actually go into the area that I think you've got there's a whole load of signs that say you can't go this way mm -hmm. like turn yeah. back now and there's this bridge that you try and jump over and I must have spent 10-15 minutes trying to get over this bridge before you let you finally get to the the small platform it breaks conquer falls down into the turd below and it makes a comment of well i definitely i guess i'm definitely not going this way now uh, and at that point i turned around and went back and thought oh i guess i'll come back here when i learned the double jump or the the extra <laughs> long flying move or something that will get me across this bridge this must be a later world to come to um and as I went on with it, it obviously becomes much more obvious that no, this isn't actually going to teach you anything new. Pretty much the only things you pick up are, as you say, bits of chocolate and the money. And you get the tails which give you extra lives, which are, pointless. frankly, pretty much pointless. Yeah, because <laughs> you, just, you just reload from the point that you yeah. left off at. Um, um, and yeah, it's... It, I don't know how it managed to escape me for such a long time that this was actually quite a different game. And as you say, the the context-sensitive buttons in any other situation would just be you stand at the top of that massive diving board and break the bottom of the bucket and it would be a ground pound slam or something that you'd do instead. Mm. So I, I found it actually, after my initial kind of disappointment that it wasn't quite what I was expecting it to be, it suddenly was just the situation of oh well actually this is quite a nice refreshing difference and I do like the fact that we're more focused on all of the story beats rather than the gameplay beats although I do have to say at the same time probably the thing that frustrated me most about the game was the fact that unfortunately a lot of the platforming does not work that well mm. and some of it is to do with the controls some of it is to do with the camera but there are bits in there where they're specifically requesting that you do a platforming climbing jumping walking along small beams section and the game does not really want to cooperate and make it easy for you. I find that section in the the tower with the, the gears that you have to climb up to the top of it, that frustrated me so much. Those tiny little platforms with the, yeah, jumping to the ropes and you can't really see the distance or the direction that you're going to jump in very easily. Um, and similarly, the other thing that wound me up no end was... 
anytime Conker has to actually pick up an item and take it back somewhere, he becomes almost entirely useless in every other respect. <laughs> like to the point where I don't think you can even fall more than about half of his body height without him just losing the item and having to go back. Hmm. And there were some points in there where I very much thought that this is, it's too much to expect you to do this and then have to restart from the entire beginning of the section if you get it wrong. Uh, the thing that got to me the most, I think, was at the end of the spooky level, you have to pick up three keys to get out of mm, the door, yeah. and it all has to be done in one entire long run with a lot of platforming, a lot of enemies that get in the way, and at any point, if you fail, you're right back at the start of it. Yeah, the, the context-sensitive stuff for me feels very much like, uh, you know, Warner Brothers, Looney Tunes kind of we need this right now, let's just pull out of our imaginary pocket and deal with the situation. And I found that quite refreshing and, uh, you know, it, it, uh, you know, innovative for the time. And I still think, I think it's quite good now. And most games, a lot of games do that now. You know, there's a lot of context-sensitive mm -hmm. moments in, like, you know, in... in you know, any game now, you just you walk up to anything and a button will prompt up for you know vault or do something else. It's not quite the same uh, in terms of what happens on screen, but the actual idea, you know, either Ocarina of Time, you know, started that with kind of you know uh, jumping up into blocks and stuff, but here it was kind of pushed to a, a whole new extreme. And you know, from from those two kind of from the N64 onwards, you know, there, a lot of games kind of use that element of context-sensitive uh, buttons and you know, kind of ran with it. But yeah, the, the level design, you know, I was quite surprised to hear that they were inspired by Mario 64's camera because I think this is probably one of the worst cameras I've ever experienced in, in a game. And that's really harsh because, I think it's harsh but fair because the world they've built, they I can see what they were trying to do with the camera. Like the, the camera tries to move by itself so it's not a hindrance for you. So you can, you know, in theory, you should be able to control conquer and you know not have any worries on the camera but there are times especially like you know john highlighted that the most important one for me when i recently came back to play it was at the start of this tower that you have to ascend to you know pull a switch and i couldn't even see the switch because it was off camera and it's kind of little things like that where you could have done with a little bit more signposting and when i'm climbing the ropes and i want to jump from one rope to another how about you know how about i have a bit more kind of because it is a platform game you are controlling a, a you know a character on screen that's on platforms and I, I need the ability to line my character up with the camera and you know use the shadows from that point onwards to see where I am in the world because it's a 3d game without a 3d effect and I kind of need the depth perception any way I can get it you know Banjo-Kazooie allows you to manip manipulate the camera you know almost 100% and you're in complete control whereas here because the camera's very at, at certain points very kind of in place and almost like a real camera and the fact that it's, it's bolted onto a wall or like a cctv camera it kind of feels like you've got no chance of moving it at all in certain areas and it was really really frustrating to come back to that point and go right let's pick up this, this uh, playthrough again oh yeah it's this moment and you know it really kind of it wasn't a good kind of come welcome back it was kind of a hey do you remember this and you're like oh man what what kicking the nuts um, but you know it, the level design. I I I love the the art and the, the music that surrounds it. But I feel like the, you know the level design and the camera are, are kind of part and parcel of the same kind of 
whole crux of why this game is or can be a bit of a chore because it just doesn't play as well as what I had expected. And on my initial playthroughs, I, I persisted because it had the characters around it to see what happens next. Yeah. Like that, that's the that, that's the page turning moment for me. Like before before you ascend this tower, you 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 stumble into a cog. He tells you to f off, and you're like, "Well, okay, mate. You just told me to do that." And um, and he says, "Bring me back my missing cogs, or just go away." Those moments are the reason why you do go through the seldom bad platforming moments because you want to see well how does this how does this aggressive cog <laughs> with the split personality how does he, how is his story how does that come to a conclusion and that curiosity alone pulled me through you know i've seen it many times and i, I want to i want to enjoy the bad moments of this game to see you know a cog being sliding onto another cog in a very sexual manner you know it's, it is that kind of immature you know, or mature humour that kind of pulls me through this game. But yeah, uh, I think we're all on the same page in saying that some of the game can be a real slog. Um, how, do, how do we feel? How do we feel over people's? I think it's also a reason why the chapters uh, section is so great because you can just replay the fun bits again mm, instead of yeah. uh, having to go through all the, the bad bits again. And because it's so varied, of course, there's also the danger that not all parts of the game are uh, equally fleshed out as well. There's a lot of flukish stuff happening in the game as well. Like yeah. you're, you're, you're accidentally getting hit by something you didn't see, knocked into something else, and all of a sudden you find all your chocolate bars depleted and you're dead. Like, uh, and, and part of yeah. that is the camera as well. Part of that is like the, the platforming sections. They require a lot of precision that uh, you just don't have. I recall uh, an underwater fin uh, spinning fan moment being uh, yeah. kind of like <laughs> one of my pad slamming moments of the N64 and when I replayed it recently I was like I remember this bit, I got angry last time I played this bit so let's go in with a different mindset and you know I, I died Ten times again, but you know, I, yep. I was expecting it this time. After rolling the, the, the pool balls up the mountain, I immediately faced the, the great mighty Pooh, and I went through the toilet, and I got through the spinning blades thing, and I went up to meet the two weasel guards, and it turned out I didn't have enough money because I had to do, uh, I had to have done the uh, section of the uh, with the catfish, the catfish ladies, and the best tower mm -hmm. first. So I had to actually make my way back through the spinning blades. Yeah, oh, opposite, no. opposite because that's your safe game, right? You can't. It's basically your game screwed if you're. Uh, you you would have to restart. So it was it was near impossible, but I finally managed to get through it. And it was it was hell. The reason why I've kind of left it so long to talk about the the characters and the jokes and the parodies of Conquers Bad Fur Day is because it really is kind of save the best till last. You know, we we spoke about. You know, we've already we've, during this podcast we've spoke about a lot of the moments. You know, you've obviously heard the Great Mighty Pooh reference quite a few times, but this is where the game also comes into. Like the voice acting is obviously part of the jokes and the parodies and the characters, but this is also you know the game. You know, this is why you come to it and the reason why we put ourselves through the the lesser moments of gameplay with this game is you know just to see how each cutscene is joined together and what happens to conquer and the the crazy idiots around him now from you know from the initial area of the kind of the serene waterfall with you know the luscious green flora and fauna around you 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 you're you have a hangover and you're you're stumbling around this kind of 
farm patch to get to a, a scarecrow called Birdie. He's a, kind of a riff on a guy who had a, you know, his name is based on a guy who had a beard and they all called him Beardy once and therefore that character was called Birdie and that's how game development was back then. And, you know, he's got his own in-jokes. He talks about Mepsi Packs and, you know, that's obviously, you know, Pepsi Max, but they couldn't say that because uh, a guy on the team drank a lot of Pepsi Max. But all these kind of in-jokes and parodies and, you know, from these characters, they all kind of make sense in the world because <laughs> just the way the game's set up. Um, for me, seeing that, the you know, Birdie, the Scarecrow, who's, uh, you know, he's obviously got a hangover too, and he, you know, he needs the hair of the dog and he needs a drink, so he tells you to press B, and you press B and you give him a beer, and he goes, you can do it again if you want. You do it again, I think you give him another beer, and if you do it again, you give him a can of helium, and his voice just changes, like, and then he, I think he tells you to, he just tells you to just go away in a pretty much aggressive manner, or you can do it again if you want, and you can just keep feeding him beer until he falls asleep. Uh, but then, you know, you um, you get to the top of this bridge and you see this kind of gargoyle-esque, you know, stone gargoyle sitting on a bridge. And it just looks out of place, but it kind of knows that. And, you know, he's, he's like, Have you ever sat on a piece of gothic architecture for 200 years? Gets right up your ass, you know. It, it kind of knows that it's a bit silly that there's this giant gargoyle sitting on a bridge. And you're, you're tasked with defeating him by slapping him with a frying pan. And like that's within the first kind of 15 minutes of the game, depending on how many times you fall down to the bottom and have to go back through it all again because the platform is not particularly Far great. Far too many. Far too many, indeed. Uh, you know, um, but you know, you end up slapping a key with a frying pan to get out of an area that you've locked yourself in. That you know, there are loads of characters and we can't really talk about them all. But how about other characters and? Uh, you know parodies and jokes that you liked and you didn't like because replaying this game recently there are a few moments where I was like if they made this game now would they keep that in so um, how do we feel about you know good and bad jokes and especially I'm quite interested to hear all of your opinions but John more in particular because he's playing it this year you know he's, he's recently played it for the first time out of all of us so has the comedy dated in any way oh um for me personally, I still got a big chuckle out of most of it because I understand a lot of the references to things. Um, I very much enjoy the fact that a lot of the characters have a specific regional uh, British accent. So you've got, for example, I think Birdie has, is it possibly a West Country accent? You start slapping him with a frying pan and he starts sort of swearing at you in uh, ridiculous West Country swag. Uh, twang and um the scouse dung beetles made me laugh probably a hell of a lot more than they should have done ah uh, well she were like dung beetles and you rolled a poo around f those what's for well really if you want some you want some poo um uh, all right get your ass in there there's these cows get them in there get them to crap and i'll make it a ball of poo and you can do what the hell you like with it go on on your bike you still here Oh, charming. <laughs> it's little bits like that, that that I enjoy, and I've always enjoyed about the Rare games, a very British sense of humour. Uh, I think there are possibly a couple of things that might not fly today in the, uh, I'd say, more PC, but possibly more kind of accepting world of 2016. Like I'm not convinced that some of the gay jokes would fly with the cogs might be a, considered to be a little bit insensitive towards homosexuals and the also I the thing that I personally 
saw and thought, mm, I don't know about that, was when you go and chase down the female cogs and you're chasing after them. And they're all screaming and running away going, no, no, no. Oh, no, anything but that. Don't leave me be. And you whack them with a frying pan, pick them up, take them back, and are party to sort of forcibly inserting them onto the male yeah. cog in a kind of a rape sexual innuendo joke. And I looked at that and thought, well, I'm going to give that a pass. But I think if somebody released that now, there'd be a lot of people talking about it in possibly the same sort of way that I hear people talking about Duke Nukem Forever in that it's just not really that okay to make jokes about this sort of thing Um, but overall I'd say like 95% of it definitely is it works for me because I'm I would have been exactly the right demographic to also play this at the same time and maybe a lot of the references wouldn't fly with people who are maybe you know teenagers now um, but it yeah, definitely it fulfilled all of my expectations in that respect. Yeah, I think the, uh, gosh, just throughout the game, the humor is so varied. I love the, I, I like the earlier bits of the game more than I like the latter half of the game. I'd say it's pretty firmly bisected into like the beginning half and the latter half. The first half is the, everything is, is walkable. It all kind of feels like a bigger world from, you know, the opening area to the farm to the uh, the Pooh Mountain, all of that just feels more connected and it feels more like original comedy. And uh, when you start getting into the latter half, that's when it really dives into the movie parodies and taking you to really kind of disparate locations. And uh, I, I think that part isn't as strong overall, both gameplay-wise and comedically. Um, I didn't really care for a lot of the characters in the war chapter. Um, I did like the kind of horror chapter, but I, I think in particular the one character that stands out to me, other than the Great Mighty Pooh, of course, is the Greg the Grim Reaper. Such a funny little guy. Mm-hmm. Just have this short little <laughs> Grim Reaper who has this squeaky little voice that is just obviously digitally, digitally up-pitched. Now, let's see. Ah, yes. Conker. Surname? The Squirrel. The Squirrel. The... Oh, bloody hell, you would have to be a sodding squirrel, wouldn't you? He's so... he hates his job, and he comes out looking all intimidating, but, uh... And he's such a good, like, visual design as well. I just really love him. How do the, um, the the regional accents and kind of jokes work for non-British people? Like, how do you react to... Before the Great Mighty Pooh fight... They, there's a there's a great tale of these dung beetles, you know, being attacked <laughs> by the poo, and they're all sitting around drinking tea. How does how does that all work? Because they, they say stuff like it came out of the shit, and I never know how people abroad or you know, sorry, uh, people in non-English countries or British countries react to that kind of humour. Does it work? Is does the internet allow for that to kind of flourish nowadays? Because I imagine back in 2001, it was kind of harder to understand. We, we got a lot of British television as well, so I got at least that they were, um, you know, <laughs> that they were using a regional accent. And mm. uh, I perceived them as kind of boorish, hooliganish uh, characters, mm. which uh, I, f- I felt was quite hilariously juxtaposed with the tea sipping. Because <laughs> yeah. I would, I would, you know, I would, uh, I would more, more imagine them more uh, sitting around with a keg of beer or something like that. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I kind of, I'm, I'm probably because 
not being British, I, I'm, I was probably not as in tune with it. But I mean, it was certainly entertaining and, and amusing and bemusing at the same time. Right. Like I couldn't identify the individual regions that these accents came from necessarily because I don't have that kind of experience with them. But uh, maybe I, I mean, I grew up watching a lot of British TV as well. And so maybe I'm more kind of in tune with like what the what stereotypes that particular accents are like trying to evoke but I, I think that they pretty much kind of speak for themselves like you can tell you can tell kind of who sounds a little bit more common who sounds a little bit more uh you know stick up their ass and uh i i think it works quite well yeah it's quite interesting to know yeah uh, some of the uh, like most of the humor in this game really works for me and i'll be honest even some of the kind of the crass stuff back when I was a 15, 16 year old kid actually made me laugh because it's kind of who I was back then but you know the, the, the cog scene of you know forcibly you know inserting a cog onto another cog was kind of a bit like oh man that, that wouldn't work nowadays That that's just a bit too much yeah. and you know the, the lady cogs that do you know end up on Mr. Big Cog's kind of wooden peg they've got bright red lips as well just to kind of add further kind of uh, not well. It's more exaggerated, you know. They're kind of pushing the fact that those lips are made for that peg, and it's kind of like, all right, we get the joke. And back when I was 16, it was kind of the funniest thing. And I think I kind of chuckled at it now because I remembered who I was back then, and you know, it's kind of you know that's who I was. And I was like, oh yeah, yeah, I just find that really hilarious. And seeing it now, I was like, okay, it kind of makes you chuckle still, but there is no way. I, th- I think it kind of gets away with it because a it's already happened and you can't really get angry at something that's already been done because you know that was, that was a long time ago and b because it's such a ridiculous cartoon game it kind of gets away with it whereas Duke Nukem Forever does these things in a very self-serious way it wasn't very well written so it kind of felt like Duke actually meant it oh yeah now I'm going to pick up this turd and throw it around you're like oh man that's disgusting but in Conquered by Third Day, he does the same thing but it feels right it feels like it's contextual you know and there are moments where it does go too far with the, the sunflower and the, you know bouncing on the, on the breasts and Conquer honey fancy going for a bounce a bounce Okay. You know, I think Chris Siever actually says that would be one thing that would change if you made the game again. And I think if you played it through all again and, you know, actually analysed it all, you would change a bit more. But more often than not, the game definitely had a had its, um, you know, had its giggles out of me. And, yeah, again, I there's the reason why I come back to it every now and again. Even, like, uh, Mikhail said, just for the chapter select bit where you can just choose the bits that you remember fondly because the bit where you're doing the um, the bullfighting and uh, you have to get her to drink <laughs> the prune juice to make... Uh, it's such a ridiculous moment. And the music in the background and the... Ooh, ooh, yeah, she's like, she's just shitting and it's great. But then it makes the big guy angry and uh, it's just such a great moment that you don't see anywhere else. And I will come back to that and just go, right, let's see this bit again because it is absolutely ridiculous. You got, I think she's got like a Birmingham accent, like a Brummie accent. And, um, you know, you, you're using this big male ball to charge into her to make her explode, to make the blood flow. Oh, it's just, it's absurd. It still gives me chuckles, but not in a sense like, I think, oh, they're really great jokes, but more in a sense like, wow, I, you know, and at the time as well, it wasn't like, oh my God, uh, you know, 
big breasted sunflowers are so funny it was more I, f I found it hilarious on a meta level like wow they really put this in the game that made him ch chuckle more than anything <laughs> so it was more more like that and apart from other room humor there's also a lot more subtle and clever humor in there that's, that's really well delivered there, there are so many characters and we, we can't go through them all because we'll be here all night but uh, Greg, Greg, Greg the Green Reaper is kind of very fall fall breaking you know he's pretty much his introduction is just sublime, you know, you expect this giant booming Grim Reaper to come out, but it turns out to be this little kind of, you know, tiny version of a Grim Reaper, and he's got a megaphone to exaggerate his voice. And When you first die, that's your introduction to him, and you know, the death system in that game is pretty pointless, as we said earlier, because the lives don't really mean anything, because you just continue back at the last checkpoint, and, uh, you know, I, I think they do... Do they reference that in the game? I can't really remember. But the way he's the, the stuff he yeah, says when he when you first when you first meet him, he says like you're dead as an ox and you're dead as a something. And I'm like, what's he even going on about? Like, is he so bored of his job that he can't bother to make any sense? <laughs> but it's kind of this kind of stuff that's stuck in my head. And uh, apparently, squirrels can have as many lives as they think they can get away with. <laughs> But, you know, before we move on to uh, the parodies and stuff, we must talk about the Great Mighty Pooh. Because it is yes. kind of the go-to moment for this game. And... Um, you know, it's a bit of a kind of a, me, 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 a another one of those moments where you you play kind of the the, the the awkward bit before it to get to the good bit. You know, you end up rolling poo up a hill quite a few times, I think, or twice, one up each side of the mountain, and it's kind of a bit of a chore to get rid of this giant kind of creature on top of the uh, mountain. But once you do end up getting your your way into it, uh, you know, and, and pursuing uh, you know enduring that moment of kind of like all right let's roll another turd up the mountain which is quite funny and the soundtrack behind it is very you know monty python-esque i guess you know it's kind of a tune like a kind of a jazz tune but instead of well as well as kind of traditional instruments they also fart in tune with the music which is kind of like the bees but with fart noises and you know it's all very kind of rare-esque um and very british-esque but the Great Mighty Pooh is one of a kind, and I kind of wished that the whole game was... Every boss was kind of introduced with a musical moment, and maybe at some point they were, but and this one was a proof of concept and they just kept it in there. Because it does kind of feel out of place, but at the same time, kind of the highlight of the game. Uh, how do we feel about the Great Mighty Pooh? Surely we all love it, right? Well, absolutely. <laughs> that was the moment for me when I knew, like, this is a really special game. like. It just it, playing to that point like I was having a good time but I was a little kind of unconvinced and then as soon as that happened I remember it just being like a almost like a monumental moment for me which feels so stupid considering what it is but like just seeing it it rise up out of the poo and start singing and I all of a sudden like I was fighting a musical boss that interacted with the music like um you know, the strategy with fighting him like he'd come up to sing a few notes and that was his weak point and just that is so clever and it, it works so well and it's like everything about that fight really uh um 
kind of hit a chord for me. I, I like the, very much like the juxtaposition of, well, how are we going to manage to fit in a boss that's essentially just a huge mound of crap that you throw toilet <laughs> rolls at to, uh, to get rid of it? I mean, that's a little bit crass, isn't it? Well, how about we make him an opera singer as well? That would class <laughs> it up a little bit. It's a great parody of the kind of bombast of video game bosses typically. For him to essentially, you know, rise up with that really regal music, and I think it is just the kind of regality of it all that really uh, um, strikes a chord with me. And he announces proudly, like, "I am the great mighty Pooh," and just like that is so, like that is what I imagine Bowser saying every time he walks onto the stage, <laughs> like, "I'm Bowser, and I'm the biggest mm. badass on the land." And, and just to like hear somebody actually come out and and say it, like it's so funny. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember the the sweet corn getting taken down in a very Jaws esque fashion, you know, mm. kind of like swelling around <laughs> in, in the fecal matter, and then he rising, you know, the, the poo rising out of the the mountain or the, you know the base of the mountain. But the thing that always sticks in my mind for this thing, other, other than the, the sing along, which the little kind of the ball of poo <laughs> jumps along the bottom like a Disney sing along karaoke moment. Is the, is the swearing obviously pushed the um, the N64 to its limits verbally. Like, I never heard those words on an N64 or in games at that point. I never heard those words muttered out loud. I was like, okay, they've just said chocolate starfish on an N64 game. Um, that's that's ridiculous. And, uh, you know, well done for them for actually going through with it. And, you know, the phrase I've never even heard like before, like, bab. Like, I know what it means now. But back then I was like, what the hell does push you out of all my bab mean? Like, that's just, that's just weird. Uh, so the game taught me a fair few things about the English language as well as you know <laughs> as well as uh, other things but the thing that stuck out for me the most is the kind of the art that goes with it and the mm. stretchy bits that join his mouth together yeah, yeah every time I think of the great Mike Pooh it's just the way he delivers those lines and the way that the mouth is kind of stuck together with all this well he says it clagginess it's all kind of like all very kind of together <laughs> it's all very well put together like and the way he kind of splashes around and you fight him off a toilet roll but with the context sensitive buttons it's uh, when you end up defeating him and that sphinx I, I guess it's a sphincter or it's kind of the I don't know what it is but it cracks at the end and you end up flushing him down the toilet it's just I don't there's never there's nothing else like it in in any video games I don't think and uh, you know for, I think for that one reason alone you know kind of don't want to ruin my conclusion but for that reason alone you, you have to at least check it out on online or play it yourself the whole boss fight feels like one big musical piece because it goes through these three different mm -hmm. stages and the, the tempo increases and the, the more instruments mm. join and you know you got the, the little singing intermissions with it and then conquer even joins in for one tiny bit <laughs> yeah. What's a real shame is that this fight is kind of broken on the xbox version uh, there's a little bit of a a visual glitch or something like a little freeze in one of the verses which makes the rest of the uh, the rest of that verse off sync which is too bad because this is kind of like the big show-off moment for the game and it doesn't quite work ah you cursed squirrel look what you've done i'm flushing i'm flushing oh what a world what a world who would have thought a good little squirrel like you could destroy my beautiful flagginess? Oh, I'm going! Oh! Ah! No! Ah! <laughs> now that's what I call a bowel movement. But yeah, you know, there, there are quite a... F 
that there are a few bosses in this game, uh, you know, and they take place on various scenarios, you know, the, the mountain of Pooh being one and on the back of a dinosaur with another where you take down a big giant caveman. Um, but, you know, there's also kind of parodies of films in there as well. And we can't really go through them all because we'll be here forever. But they, they, they kind of sometimes also, uh, also intermingle the, the two. So, like, the end of the game, you're in, like, a spaceship uh, in space because obviously why not because it's a video game. And you have to launch an, a very xenomorph-looking uh, creature out of the airlock in a very Bowser from Mario 64 fashion. And so stuff like that was kind of interesting, even though I found that quite frustrating at the same time. It was kind of an interesting take of rare prodding at Nintendo, but also prodding at other things. Um, any any favorites for parodies for you? For, for me, the, the hay bale with the, the, the Terminator. Again, a frustrating boss fight for me, much <laughs> like most of them actually, but like whenever it comes to playing these boss fights, I'm always kind of like angry at it. But when when the cutscenes happen around it, and he says like you know Susie nine millimeter, you're like oh that's why I've, that's why I like this game because it does those things. Anyone else have similar feelings? I also like the kind of mobster boss character. He's not really like the Godfather from The Godfather, but he plays a similar role. And just the music that accompanies him is very Godfather like, and his voice is so like uh, just perfect. You know, gangster. This is the wise guy that tried to steal my dough. What do you gotta say for yourself, boy? He's got the wheeze and the, uh, yeah, beating up uh, one of his henchmen while they're all standing around the table. It's very much like that. <laughs> yeah. And uh, but before we move on to the multiplayer of the N64 game, I must give a big shout out to my barn boys, the pitchfork and the brush and the paint <laughs> pot. Those guys are just stupid beyond belief and. Like again, just just see that moment happen in front of you, and the kind of the things they get up to. It kind of it all fits together, but in a way that a jigsaw shouldn't fit together. It's completely absurd, and that ties into my favourite boss fight as well. So it all kind of links together. But yeah, the Barn Boys. The um... I guess it recently came out that that was supposed to be a KKK joke. Recently. Ah, uh, yeah, 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 definitely, yeah, yeah. So the, yeah, they did cut. They did have a, a kind of a an element of you know knowing what was wrong back then and uh, yeah it was supposed to be a a KKK moment but yeah the, the moment where um he, he tries to hang himself and they all call him a stupid bastard because he hasn't got a neck is just <laughs> completely just ridiculous and you know it, it's kind of peppered with moments where you have to then get to the bit where you throw the knives and then you're like oh no I've got to play this game again uh, so yeah the multiplayer in the N64 game I remember being it was um it was well done. There was there was stuff to be played in there that was worth playing. There was also stuff that wasn't worth playing. I, I, for me, the heist no no sorry the beach landing um game was my game of choice where one of you was the well, the teddies. We didn't even speak about the teddies, but you know uh, you you play as a, a German teddy bear that's spelt similar to Nazis the teddies, and you have to gun down these kind of French sounding ho he ha kind of little bears that have to get into the uh, the escape vehicle to get away. And it was a really good kind of cat and mouse mini game kind of thing because you were positioning yourself in the bunker, shooting outwards, and then your friend on the other side of the screen, split screen style, was running towards you. And you know, it, it sounds like it shouldn't work because you could see where the guy was hiding all the time, but there was enough kind of variety in the moves and stuff to, uh, you know, to, to slip through unscathed and, you know, save the day ha, anyone got any particular standouts for the multiplayer or, or did you not touch it at all I didn't touch it personally um, but it was pretty impressive how well it all worked just kind of from the reputation of uh, everything and I, I've kind of 
you know, played around with it in single player without any friends or anything, but um, it, it's cool because you can use a lot of the models of the characters throughout the game, and uh, I always like when multiplayer modes allow you to do that. I did mess around and play each of the different game types with bots, and yeah, I'm I'm surprised at how much they've put in there. It seems like they've gone above and beyond the Call of Duty with yeah, uh, with what they could have got away with. I mean, it could have been a completely single player experience, and I don't think anybody would have batted an eyelid. So hmm. I thought it was impressive just that it existed, let alone the number of different, like completely different game types. Yeah, Rare went for a kind of a, a moment of adding multiplayer to games that didn't really need it, such as Banjo Tooie and Donkey Kong 64, you know. But in Conker's Bad Fur Day, it kind of fit because of all the parodies and jokes going around it it kind of made sense that these kind of stage characters were doing something else you know but but around the back of the bar which is i, I do like the um the level select the kind of the safe select screen <laughs> is kind of you in a pub it's just brilliant me and uh, me and a couple of friends sometimes come together and we hook up an old console like a dreamcast or something preferably something with four controller ports and uh, maybe this uh, the, the conquer multiplayer is uh, is up for uh, for our next session yeah, I'd, try, I'd do it on the Xbox One version if you have Rare Replay, just for frame rate reasons. But definitely check it out, because it's, uh, it's good fun. Conquer Live and Reloaded was released on the Xbox. There are so many different um, differences between the two versions of the game. Uh, you know, primarily you'll you'll first see the art and the graphics being a you know a huge improvement. Which again, uh, I, I played it today and I couldn't believe how well I could believe it because it's rare. But at the same time, I was quite impressed by how well it stands up yeah, for an Xbox incredible. game. Yeah. yeah, it looks beautiful. It's kind of and, on um, par with Cameo almost, really. And uh, they mm, used a lot yeah. of the same effects from. Uh, conquer and carried over into cameo or probably the other way around really but um like the fur effect and the foliage and a lot of the lighting and um, there's some really impressive stuff in there he, he looks very beardy in, in live and reloaded um which is kind of interesting because it kind of fits with his is apparently he's meant to be 21 so the fact that he's kind of beardy in the xbox version that i think microsoft well microsoft were quite kind of worried on how to market a game about uh urinating drunk squirrel so probably making him furrier and therefore more bushy beardy it was kind of uh kind of lent well to the marketing of that game and what it was um have they censored a lot of the swear words you know that i think yeah, the which great is weird <laughs> Mm, yeah, because mm. you went from Nintendo console to Microsoft console, and Microsoft are apparently all about the mature gamer, uh, you know, the older gamer. Uh, but to swear, you know, I've got mixed feelings about it because I like the original uh, voice acting, but when I replayed Live and Reloaded uh, recently, it didn't bother me as much as I thought it would. I think sometimes, uh, you know, bleeps and bloops can be funny at the right time. Um, but I, I feel like in this case they kind of did it because they thought the words were too rude rather than doing it for comedy effect. The Xbox version censors the word twat, I do believe, and it's kind of like, oh no, you want the way the Mighty Pooh delivers that word with such passion, it feels like he's really angry at you and he'll swear at you in such gusto that it makes sense. But to, to kind of, it kind of pulls the rug from under the whole song. It's like, oh no, you want to keep that in. Like really, the whole song should be uncensored because that's you know that's the song, and uh, it's a bit of a shame that they did censor it. And for, I think for that reason alone, people prefer the N64 one, which is probably why it ended up in Rare Replay as opposed to Live and Reloaded. Um, 
I kind of wish they had the best of both worlds, Hannah Montana style, you know, give me the original voice acting with the <laughs> gameplay, level design changes and art of the Live and Reloaded and we're good to go, but sadly, you know, they couldn't, they, they couldn't obviously do that because that would take too much effort and work and, you know, Rare Replay's a bargain at 20 quid with all those games in it, so what, what can we expect? I played the the uh, opening and I noticed there was quite a few changes to the level design they, they've made branches stick out further for you to jump on easier and uh, you know they, they kind of just made the game a little bit more user friendly and uh, you know there are loads of changes to be read about if you're really interested in it but we uh... and they changed the controls on the attacks actually uh, when you pull out your weapon you go into almost like a third person shooter type of control setup uh, which they carried mm. over from the multiplayer, but yeah, that was uh, that was new yeah. and it actually works pretty well. Even though I think the frying pan is funnier than the baseball bat with nails in it, but that's just my personal preference. Uh, but the the, the crosshair for the slingshot is a welcome addition, you know. Trying to hit those um, sweary dung beetles from Liverpool uh, with a with the original N64 slingshot was a bit of a chore because there's no there's no crosshair. But they've made some clever changes, and again, I kind of wish they had the best of both worlds for a re-release, but. I guess we should be grateful we got it at all in uh, 2015. Uh, but yeah, the biggest change was the live, you know, the, the subtitle to Conquer is live and reloaded. Reloaded being the, the retooling of the Bad Fur Day, the live being the retooling of the multiplayer. And I didn't like it one bit. Uh, maybe because mm. I was bitter about, you know, seeing it from the early inception and playing it when it came out. I was like, this is, this has no character at all and it's completely against what the game for me was and is. Yeah. Uh, it kind of felt like they were, they, they saw Halo and went, we can do something like that, couldn't we? And, you know, it, Xbox Live was going through changes at that time. And I think Microsoft's influence, or, or maybe Rare's, uh, you know, excitement for Xbox Live at the time kind of influenced how they designed the multiplayer. But I didn't spend a single moment of worth remembering in that multiplayer. Anyone have any fond memories of it or not at all? I have some very strong memories about this, actually, and uh, strong feelings. This actually... Uh, one of the big problems that I had with the remade version was the redesign of the teddies. Um, in the original version, they were more like they were a little sinister looking, but they essentially looked like teddy bears. And when you shot them or, you know, punched them or whatever, they would uh, kind of, you know, poof stuffing all over the place, just like a teddy bear would. And in the newer version, uh, and this was probably just to make them a little bit more visually, di visually dynamic so that they can kind of class code them in the multiplayer game, but they made them more realistic. They gave them like realistic looking eyes and they gave them more kind of realistic bear proportions. And um, and then they, they bled like actual blood, which felt a lot less funny to me. And just the design of all of these, uh, both the, the teddies and the squirrels in the, the live multiplayer section, uh, it seemed to really undercut the comedy for what they were trying to, I don't know, it felt like they kind of made it a little bit more kind of gritty and grown up, um, which didn't really make sense because they're still like teddy bears and squirrels, and so you're not really... Uh, but I, I did spend quite a bit of time in the multiplayer modes, and this was just me playing with bots or maybe with somebody else in split screen, but I, I really, really enjoyed the gameplay, and I kind of wish that they would bring it back for you know rare replay downloadable content or something because there's actually some really strong stuff here and uh, you know given that I, I didn't actually play it with other humans but um, I really love all of the different maps had different play styles that were associated with them there was some capture the flag there was some controlling 
uh, you know, portions of the base. There was some where you had to use gondolas to go back and forth between two disconnected portions of the map. And I thought that they were very strong maps. There was some really excellent music. It looked really great. The uh, guns were all extremely varied and felt really good to fire. And there was vehicles and um, you know, there were two... Uh, there was a World War II and a future setting, which is um, very interesting that it really mixed up the dyna uh, visual dynamic like that. And um, I just came across really impressed with the work that they had done. And I think in particular, what was particularly strong was the uh, the spy class, I think it was called. You could go invisible, just like in Team Fortress 2, but your main weapon, instead of having a gun, was a like a giant katana and balancing a strictly melee uh, character with otherwise ranged characters is a really difficult balance and I think that they did it really well in that she could pretty much decapitate anybody if she hit them with the third hit of the uh, consecutive swing combo and so if you got that timing down then you could pretty readily sweep in and decapitate people and so she was deadly but also very vulnerable to the ranged attacks and um, that's kind of how I always wanted the like the Jedi to be balanced in the Star Wars Battlefront games and they I always felt like they did so much better job of balancing uh, ranged and melee characters than the Star Wars team had ever done pretty much what what Ryan said I thought uh, I haven't played played that much of it but from what I played I thought it was a mechanically it was a it was a very fun take on the whole classic Team Fortress uh, approach with all the different classes and uh, Okay, well, we're running out of time, so we must hear what the community have to say. We have two pieces of uh, feedback from the forum and some free word reviews. Uh, Ryan, you're good at speaking, aren't you? Do, do you want to read these for us? Sure. You're better than me, and you've got a, bit, you've got a better voice than I have, so you, can, can you do it? Me, 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 me. Uh, yeah, so we have from Hansford from the forum, says, Conker's Bad Furnay arrived at an unfortunate time sales-wise. The N64 was in its deathbed already and people were moving on. Not that I cared about stuff like this back then. The impression has been made and it still lasts. Conquer became a very personal game for me, and I remember reading articles and magazines and looking at the same few screenshots over and over, soaking up every little bit of the news we got. This game formed my taste for games and appealed to 14-year-old me in a way that very few games did before. The graphics, the characters, the humor, the fourth wall breaking, the in-game cutscenes with actual face animation, and of course the bloods and guts. <laughs> the blood and guts. <laughs> This wasn't the cute platformer you were used to, that's for sure. My mum definitely didn't know about the game's gross contents. A few days before my 14th birthday, I snuck into the living room and voila, there it was. Nicely wrapped up, hidden in a drawer. I committed my only true crime then and there. I played it for half a day with my sister before carefully putting it back in the wrapper. No regrets. I felt right at home with the gameplay, having played Mario 64 and Banjo-Kazooie to completion multiple times. The way the game's story progressed felt narrated and episodic, yet they somehow managed to prevent it, prevent it from feeling randomly pieced together. The ending is surprisingly dark and stands as one of the favorite final chapters from any game. Just wait till you get there, if you haven't played it. I like to think of Conker as a rare cough cough, spark of genius from the N64 era. It was ahead of its time, although some aspects may have aged better than others, don't ask me, my rose-tinted glasses are really strong with this one. 
The great soundtrack and sound design by Robin Beanland is at least as crucial to the experience as everything I mentioned so far. You just didn't get the sounds like this from other N64 games. I still listen to the music on my music player today. The great Mighty Pooh even became popular among the people who didn't even play the game. You can feel this was a team effort with crystal clear direction. Conker's Bad Fur Day knows its childish silliness and runs with it. The only good game I've played since that almost completely achieved this mix of inspired art design, gameplay, and software storytelling is Psychonauts Special. It's actually a really good point that he brings up there, that this was overlooked perhaps because the N64 was already on its way out, and then mm-hmm. Life and Reloaded was like during the run-up to the 360 and maybe even after the 360 yeah. launched, and so I, I think the the thing is that if you want a new console generation to start, then all you have to do is just make a new Conquer game and it'll happen. Bakers12 from the forum says, I first learned about Conquer's Bad Fur Day from watching CITV's Bad Influence, where they showed a clip of it at the end of the show and describing it as a possible swan song for the N64. Despite how short the clip was, it, it stuck with me, and I was impressed by the look of it. But the idea of a cute platformer but with adult sensibilities and clever use of film parodies really resonated with me for some reason. Years later, I picked up a secondhand N64 for my girlfriend to take to uni with her, or was it for me to play when I visited? But there were still a few places where you can buy N64 games brand new. As a platformer, it was alongside Mario, it was one of my favorites. Everything I liked about the video I saw years before translated to when I was playing it. For the most part, the platforming is a lot of fun. But there were a few bits that were highly annoying, like the climb up the Pooh Mountain, though the payoff for uh, getting into it was facing off the Great Mighty Pooh, who is one of the best gaming creations ever, and if his song is not played on the podcast, it would be an outrage. (laughs) I have shown that section of the game to non-gamers and seen them in fits of laughter. Conquer does a very good job in making the game varied in style and gameplay, giving you different locales to explore, characters to meet, and things to do. For the most part, it works, though some of the latter stages, which rely on shooting, did not quite work for me. When played in third person, the shooting was a little too unwieldy, and when in first person mode, you were a sitting duck. Now I know this was because the devs back then were still figuring this kind of thing out. One of my biggest gaming regrets is the fact that I never completed the game. That final boss always got the better of me. I would love to see the second Bad Fur Day, but I don't know if if lightning would strike twice with it now. When people think of an adult platformer now, things like Braid or Fez spring to mind, not of a pissed up squirrel. And we are on to the free word reviews. You can tweet us at KNRINCE and use the hashtag CRTWR, I think that spells out the right acronym. Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, so free word reviews. You can review the game in free words, and uh, people on Twitter have done so. Starting with Michel. Hansford. Worthwhile squirrel drama. Ethel the Frog tries too hard. Baker's 12. Mario meets Spaced. Andrew Brown. Sensitive to context. Ben Ford. <laughs> Nintendo was intoxicated. Xavier Fox Shandy. Great Mighty Pooh. Dylan Lee. Definitely not racing. Kevin Fitzgerald says, Demented squirrel antics. Mark McGee. Those bloody cats. Uh, Roxy. It's context sensitive. And that King Rocker. Immature rated platformer. Nice. So in summary, we'll try and keep it brief because otherwise it's just going to get cut out anyway. 
John, how was your 2016 playthrough of Conquer's Bad Fur Day? Well, I think I've probably covered most of what I'm going to say previously, so I'll keep it fairly brief. Uh, I enjoyed it a lot with some initial frustrations uh, regarding the fact that it wasn't quite what I expected it to be. And I think although the gameplay uh, aspects of it are arguably its weakest part, which is slightly disappointing you know, given that it's a game you know the fact that the gameplay is probably its lowest point is a slight frustration given that in a game I feel that should probably be quite a high priority I'm very willing to look past it all for the the pure sort of goodness of the the non-gameplay side of things um, I don't know how easy it would be to recommend it to anybody uh, I think it would be quite difficult certainly to recommend for somebody who's coming into this without previous knowledge of this type of genre so maybe somebody who is quite a lot younger than than any of us are uh, I think maybe it's a bit of a historical piece now um, but if you were in any way involved in this situation with games like this in the past with these rare games it's definitely worth looking out and if you're yeah if you enjoy the kind of crass not particularly intelligent humour side of it, then it's definitely good for a few chuckles. Thank you very much. Uh, Ryan? Yeah, I, I think that this game made a really strong impression on me when I played it, and uh, that was particularly because I was so deeply entrenched in the type of game that this was really uh, kind of taking the mick out of, but it really doesn't have a place in the current marketplace, and so I don't really see a lot of uh, need for a sequel or even a re-release in today's market because it's it is such a relic of the past and requires pretty intimate knowledge of the types of, of tropes that were uh, being shown in those types of games for it to really uh, really make sense in the first place um, but I, I still do really love this game and I, I don't even think it's that good really like the writing is kind of it's kind of middling the humor is it's very scatological the gameplay is kind of middling but just maybe it's just me but there's so much charm and there's so much personality and character and all of it just really connected with me and so it really does have to be on a person by person level and so if you grew up in the n64 era and have a great affection for the banjo kazooies of the world um, and maybe still remember some of that Donkey Kong 64 fatigue, then this would be a great game for you. Um, or really, if you're looking for something just very novel, there's not a lot else like this. Um, I, I am still really crossing my fingers that Live and Reloaded, including the multiplayer bits, do get ported to the Xbox One because uh, I think they really hold up pretty well. And even though the more realistic graphics don't necessarily speak to the era of games that it was parodying I, I think that it's a very pleasant looking game and I would love to see it in a you know good frame rate in widescreen and HD so if that is still in the pipeline then I will definitely buy that yeah I would definitely buy even though the live version or the live mode of Live and Reload didn't really work for me I'd definitely give it a second chance I had a new lease of life uh, but overall Conquered Bad Fur Day for me is it's such a mixed bag of I love it and I hate it. It's kind of like if you experience both sides of the Marmite emotions, you would know that, you know, oh, there's, there's so many good, good and bad moments of this game that kind of come together. But 
for me, the good outweighs the bad. Like, I can endure bad games and, you know, I can play through these moments and kind of have gritted teeth and swear at it because, I know, as I said earlier, because I know these moments are coming and the, the game is well-crafted and, you know, it's a believable, insane world and you kind of want to see what's around the corner. It's, you know, if you've never played it because your N64 was dead or you moved on at that point or you just didn't have the money to buy it, you can, and you've got an Xbox One, you can pick up a copy of Rare Replay for, you know, 20 quid at the most, eight quid at the cheapest that I've seen it. So if you're, even if you're interested or intrigued about any part of the game, then there's never been a cheaper time to, to play it if you've got an Xbox One. Uh, I've I've got the N64 version on my shelf, and the reason w it, it goes for quite a bit on eBay. I'm gonna, you know, I'll, I'll say that it goes for a couple hundred quid at most. And the reason why I haven't sold it is because I I, I love it as much as I don't love it, and uh, I, I can't I can't let it go because it is one of a kind, and I don't think a game like this will ever get made again. Um, and Mr. Michel, for your podcast and debut. How do you feel about Conquer's Bad Fur Day and Live and Reloaded after all these years? I've, I've always been a kind of an evangelist of the game. Um, I've multiple people. I've got uh, I've gotten them to buy a copy of the game for themselves. Even two of my friends, I've uh, gotten them to buy an N64 because of this game. Uh, and one of my friends couldn't find any other N64 uh, in in the hurry that he was in to, to get one, so he got he got himself the Pikachu N64 uh, edition only because of Conker's Bad Fur Day. Um, <laughs> and, nice. Um, so, but I, I also have this very high-level geeky thing where I um, review every single game in my collection and I share it with my friends for their amusement. And those same people that I've gotten to buy an N64 or the game itself are very surprised that I rate the game only three out of five stars in my own little super geeky mini review collection. <laughs> <laughs> so I've always had to put up with lots of debates uh, with them. And it's kind of, it's the exact same thing uh, that you guys were talking about. It's just like, it's, um, it's such a hit and miss thing to play through the game. Uh, but ultimately, I do love it in a very irrational way. Uh, it's hard to put a finger on it. It's just, yeah, it, the game just resonates with me from a pers from a presentation uh, perspective, and even from some of the, um, some of the uh, uh, mechanical bits. For example, I, I still playing through it again this time. I was still really enjoying the matrix, the enter the vertex uh, bit, for example. <laughs> it was still one of the high points of the game for me, just to play through. And there's there's various other bits that I was really enjoying getting through. Uh, some some parts that definitely made me grit my teeth, um, but I also kind of enjoyed the the challenge of it to to overcome it. Um, in the end, I would recommend, still recommend playing the uh, the game to pretty much anyone, just with the caveats that there's there's some rough spots in it that you're going to have to power through. Well. It's just time for me, Darren, to thank Ryan, John and Michael. And next time in issue 219, in true Kanemitz fashion, we'll be taking a hard left and talking about Shin Megami Tensei Persona 3. Hopefully we can evoke some memories for you. That's a thing in Persona, isn't it? The evoker? I don't know. Thank you very much.